This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. In this episode, we have Dinosaur of the Day, Chasmosaurus. We have a crazy amount of news, and I feel like we say that every week, but this week is an especially crazy amount of news. So we were going to have an interview with Bruce Schumacher, but we're going to push it off to next week because there's just too much news to do both. It would probably be like well over two hours. (laughs) So... Look for Bruce's interview in next week's episode. And as always, we want to thank some of our Patreon supporters, specifically this week, Kyle, Brendan, the Tolbert family, and Sean Tanagaki. Thanks, everyone. We really appreciate all your support and questions and feedback and emails and everything. First in the news, we have another new dinosaur. This one's called Xingxulong Chengai. And Xingxu literally translates to constellation, but it was chosen because of the local Xingxu bridge. And of course, long means dragon in Chinese. You see long at the end of tons of names, almost as much as Saurus. So it means constellation dragon or Xingxu bridge dragon, depending on how you want to look at it. <laughs> and then Chengai honors the late Zhengwu Cheng who is a significant local Chinese biostratigrapher. So he did a lot of work in the area and passed away recently. So they honored him with a dinosaur species name. That's nice. Yeah. Xing Shulong was found in the Lufeng County of China. And just like Lufengosaurus, it's a sauropodomorph. It's also from the early Jurassic, but Xing Shulong is about 10 million years older putting it at about 200 million years old and right after the Triassic, the very, very beginning of the Jurassic. So not that big. No, still pretty small. And like most sauropodomorphs, you know, it's that transition where it's herbivorous and starting to get bigger, but it's not too big yet. They're about four to five meters or 13 to 16 feet long and about one to one and a half meters or three to five feet tall. So yeah, that's pretty small as far as sauropods are concerned. They found three individuals in the find. They got two adults and one juvenile and they combined to make almost a complete fossil. They were mostly just missing bits and pieces from the ribs and limbs. And I think they even had like a complete limb, all the fingers, all that kind of stuff, legs. It's pretty amazing. The skeleton is getting beefier than a lot of similar aged sauropodomorphs, and they think that it was adapting for more weight than some of its cousins. So it was kind of on its way to getting bigger, but it hadn't really beefed up much yet. And to that point, it still had four digits on its hands, and it appears that it was still bipedal, so it didn't need to use its front arms for holding itself up yet. That doesn't mean it didn't, though, right? Uh, By their estimation, looking at the hands, they didn't think that it would really even be useful as kind of a foot. So I think this one was early enough that it was still basically bipedal. Okay. Although they did mention that its shoulder blade had gotten bigger, so that does kind of make you wonder. Next up, there's a new discovery. And I say new, but we saw it actually back at SVP, but it was finally published in Nature. And I think this was one of the articles that we weren't allowed to talk about at the time because it was really exciting, but they wanted to publish it before everybody started (laughs) talking about it. So 
Some scientists in China took an exceptionally well-preserved Anchiornis to see what else they could learn about the fossil. And we've talked about Anchiornis before. It had red and black feathers. There were preserved melanosome-type structures. What they did for this study was they used laser fluorescence to look for more detail past just the color of the feathers. And they found incredibly detailed skin outlines around much of the body. So if you imagine you have a bird skeleton and you're looking at a wing, it just looks like an arm. There's nothing to it that really looks wing-like because it just bends like an arm does. And you can't tell if there's any skin in between it that would make a wing structure. Luckily, when they fluoresced this fossil, they managed to see skin that was stretching in a way that looked like there would have been a wing on its arm. It was really amazing that they could get this out of the fossil because there wasn't actually much skin preserved there, but it was just trace enough amounts that it fluoresced under the laser and they could see these just faint remnants of where the skin was back when it fossilized. That's crazy. Yeah, it was really cool. And the way that they described it is they said, quote, the body outline confirms patagia bearing arms, drumstick shaped legs, and a slender tail, features that were probably widespread among paravians, end quote. And patagia is the skin that I was talking about that stretched across a wing that's typically covered in feathers, although it isn't in bats and pteranodons and things. I was just thinking, yeah, that of bats specifically. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It's kind of an easier way to imagine what it looks like because when all the feathers are in the way, it's hard to Mm -hmm. think about what's underneath. So it's also funny to me that they say it had drumstick-shaped legs, (laughs) but that's exactly what it looked like. It has that kind of bulge where the muscle would have been on the leg. You think it tasted like chicken? I'm sure. Why not? Mm. They also found details on the foot pads with round scales that are just like the ones that are seen on modern birds. So they look just like chicken feet, basically, or any other kind of bird foot. And they're really beautiful pictures of all the different areas of the bird and the fluorescence that they managed to recover. It's published in the open access journal Nature Communications. And we have a link on our show notes and on our website that will direct you towards this awesome article with the really cool pictures if you're interested. And speaking of birds, there's a new summary of early bird evolution that does a really good job breaking down the different groups of early bird dinosaurs and how well the different groups could probably fly. So they point out that feathers probably didn't first evolve for flight, but instead were for some kind of display or something Keeping warm or protecting babies or something. Yeah, exactly. Not something specifically related to moving. So they made this awesome picture and it breaks down all the different kind of groups of dinosaurs that had feathers or proto-feathers. Got Anchiornis. It does. Yeah, that's kind of in the middle of the group. But in the beginning, you have Cetacosaurus, which obviously couldn't fly because that's a ceratopsian. But it had those little frill brush bristles on its tail. And then there's Dilong that also couldn't fly. It's a theropod that had some proto feathers and then kind of bristly feathers on its tail. And then you get into things like Ornithomimus and Cauteryx. They look kind of like ostriches and emus. Yeah, but they're starting to get those more pinacious flight-like feathers on their arms, but still, you know, not really shaped right for (laughs) flying. And then you get like Yi Chi, which was a possible glider, the one that was almost like a bat that kind of evolved out of nowhere. Pretty weird little side shoot there. And then later on, there are things like Microraptor and Anchiornis, which are the Paravians. And those ones were probably pretty good at flying, maybe just gliding. It's kind of hard to tell exactly. And then finally, you get to things like Archaeopteryx, which is basically completely covered in feathers and flight feathers. So we figure it could fly pretty well. And the modern bird, which could fly, obviously. Archaeopteryx in this image looks kind of like a turkey. A little bit, yeah. Like a thin turkey. Yeah, and they can fly. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing is Archaeopteryx evolved a lot earlier than some of these other birds. And they talk about in the article how it didn't seem like the main driving force towards these feathers was flight because you see some would evolve flight 
and then you know they wouldn't be flying later on or similarly related ones weren't converging on a similar feather very quickly like you would expect if they were all trying to fly so it's a pretty interesting study and it's a really good overview of which dinosaurs had feathers and just how much feather covering they had because a lot of times people talk about did this dinosaur have feathers did that one have feathers and the answer might be yes to both but that tells you very little about how well they could fly or even what they looked like because there were so many different styles and types of feathers that we don't see anymore the researchers point out that we need to get better models of these birds and they want physical models to be used in wind tunnels and they oh, also those are fun yeah yeah what they did really with cool. microraptor exactly and you can see like how much drag the tail feathers would do versus leg feathers and all that kind of stuff and then they also want to see some digital models for biomechanical capabilities of flight so that you can kind of simulate how the musculature and the ligaments could move so i'm hoping somebody like scott persons gets interested in this because he's good at that kind of stuff <laughs> there's a few paleontologists that specialize in studying flight in dinosaurs yeah but I haven't really encountered many that are biomechanically inclined. Mm. You need that kind of crossover. Biomechanics are one of the coolest but most difficult areas to study. And speaking of Scott Parsons, <laughs> he and Philip J. Curry, both friends of the show, published a new article about bipedalism in dinosaurs. And what they were looking at was why did dinosaurs evolve into bipedal creatures and how was that related to their massive success as you know basically the rulers of the mesozoic at least on land <laughs> so they point out that there were quadrupedal dinosauromorphs as recent as 250 million years ago which is pretty close to when dinosaurs evolved and at that point pretty much all the living dinosauromorphs were quadrupedal so it wasn't long after that at 240 to 230 million years ago that true dinosaurs had evolved and literally all of them were bipedal. So we went from everything that was related to dinosaurs was quadrupedal to all of the true dinosaurs were bipedal in a pretty short period of time. So it seems like there must have been a pretty strong pressure for getting those bipedal postures. Unlike the feathers where we had 100 million years and some of them would fly and then we'd have all these other weird ones that couldn't really fly but maybe could glide and all that kind of stuff. So there are four basic theories for why you might evolve bipedalism. You potentially have better thermoregulation because you're not laying on the ground or maybe you have better thermoregulation and therefore you don't need to lie on the ground anymore. It could be that you have better vision by getting up higher could be that you want your hands free for grabbing at prey or for using tools. And finally, it could be related to speed. Once they looked at these four categories, they decided, well, every animal would really benefit from thermoregulation and vision improvements. So it doesn't really seem to be meaningful that they would have been quadrupedal for such a long time and then one subset would have gone bipedal. Everything would have just been bipedal if they wanted those benefits. And the vision improvement isn't really a great choice because they were still basically horizontal. So even though they were a little bit higher off the ground, if they wanted to see farther, you'd expect them to be more upright so that, you know, they could get that farther line of sight. Well, their necks weren't that long, right? Yeah. So wouldn't that make it easier to be a little more upright? No, because like they're they still had a long tail, so they still had to balance oh, okay. horizontally. And then some dinosaurs definitely did grasp prey. We know like Allosaurus had good grasping hands, but many dinosaurs had arms that were way too short to be particularly useful at grabbing prey. Even some early dinosaurs like Coelophysis had such short arms that it could barely reach anything. I think its arm was only long enough to get halfway down its neck. <laughs> There's some sauropodomorphs too. Their arms were too short to put food from their hands to their mouths. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. So it doesn't seem like grasping is really the biggest advantage to bipedalism since so early on a lot of them couldn't really use their arms effectively. So then that basically just leaves us with their speed. And that's what Curry and Persons think is the most likely cause for their bipedalism evolution. 
Interestingly, they point out that quadrupeds are just as fast, if not faster than bipeds of the same size and, you know, relative musculature. But in order to be just as fast, you have to have all your limbs about the same size and strength. And that's not true for dinosaurs. So they have this strong caudofemoralis muscle that we've talked about before. And that's the muscle that goes down the tail and attaches to the back legs. So it kind of drives extra power to those two legs. And these early dinosaur morphs that were quadrupedal also had the caudofemoralis. So you can imagine a situation where they're trying to add more power to their rear legs and therefore they're not using their front legs as much. And when you add to that, that running on two legs allows you to accelerate faster as well as turn more quickly or what they call being more cursorial basically is being quicker. Then you have some real selective pressures to wanting to be bipedal. And they point out that after the Triassic extinction, there may have been a bunch of niches opened up that these small bipedal dinosaurs may have been able to fill quickly. They also point to several modern lizards that often run on two legs for maximum speed. <laughs> and they even mention that cockroaches occasionally run on their farthest back legs, which are their third set of legs, oh, when they're, they're running really quickly. And they describe it as popping a wheelie because they're running so quick. Oh my gosh. Isn't there a, some kind of lizard or maybe it was a gecko that can kind of run on water? Yeah, there yeah. is. Yeah, it's called the basilisk lizard, I think. And that's exactly right. It does that bipedally too. Interestingly, they kind of talk about mammals a little bit saying, how come we're bipedal? Because obviously we don't have a caudofemoralis. <laughs> we don't have a big tail powering our back legs. And they suspect that basically mammals lost the caudofemoralis and tail when we had to start living underground effectively to avoid things like dinosaurs that were trying to eat us. And then later on, when we came back above ground, we were missing that push to be bipedal. So basically, most mammals are still quadrupeds. And then humans are kind of this very strange group that became bipedal along with some monkeys. And that might be because of the whole having hands available for grasping and using tools. I think that makes the most sense because that's what we do better than any other animal. So mm -hmm. why not? <laughs> It's a complex question. <laughs> it is. But I love this biomechanical stuff. It's always interesting. Yeah. On a completely different note, but I think it's interesting. So David from the website Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs, which I'm sure a lot of you follow. It's a pretty great blog. They're doing a 2017 survey of paleo artists. So the goal is to learn more about the industry, such as who are paleo artists? What are they creating? How much do they make? And a number of paleo artists helped shape the survey. They're looking for more people to fill it out. So if you're a paleo artist, then please fill out the survey at bit.ly slash paleo art survey. And we'll also post a link on our site. And going with the website theme, so thanks to Patrick who shared this one with us via Facebook, the University of Lisbon, Portugal has launched a new website called PaleoWire. And PaleoWire features the latest news, events, job opportunities, and more related to paleontology. It's meant to be a, quote, network of resources built, managed, and maintained by paleontology-related academics, students, professionals, and enthusiasts worldwide. And they're currently looking for contributors, so... You know, we all fall into the category of enthusiasts at the very least. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And speaking of new websites, scienceopen.com has added papers from the Journal of Paleontological Techniques to their collection of open access papers. And this includes papers about amber fluorescence, fossil preparation, 3D scanning of dinosaurs, including using a Microsoft Connect, which I think is pretty interesting, and also 3D printing dinosaurs, which is something that I really want to get into. And I read this paper that was awesome. It goes through taking a CT scan and parsing out the data and then getting a 3D print of a dinosaur from it. Cool. Yeah, super awesome. I wonder how long that takes to print. I don't know. I guess it depends how big it is. Yeah. And I know it depends on like the density and they call it the quality, which is basically like the resolution. So if it's all jagged, 
then you can do it quickly. But if you want it to have kind of smooth contours, it takes a lot longer. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Because we have 3D printers at work. So we've done a little bit of that. And I know, for example, uh, we were helping with mentoring some kids and they wanted to try the 3D printer. So one person, uh, she made her name in graffiti and we printed that out. And it actually, it only took maybe an hour or two. And part of it was because the middle of it was hollow. It was mm. like, it took a long time to do the base and then it started just doing basically an outline. Yeah, there's lots of like tricky things you can do to make it print quicker. Yeah. Next, the Field Museum in Chicago is partnering with the Chicago Athletic Association Hotel to have this pop-up bar museum exhibition for one month on weekend nights. This is according to Chicago Tribune. So for one month, starting March 25th, if you're in the Chicago area on Friday and Saturday nights between 5 p.m. and midnight, go to the back room, capital B bar, that's the name of the bar, in the hotel, the Athletic Association Hotel, and you'll see temporary exhibits from the museum. So people will be able to see dinosaur fossils and more while sipping specially created cocktails such as uh, Negroni, which is gin, vermouth, and Grand Classico bitter, and Amaro Mule, which is... Luxardo Amaro Abano, Luxardo Bitter, Fever Tree Ginger Beer. I don't think I know what any of those things are except for beer. Yeah, I, I don't either, <laughs> but they sound fancy. And these cocktails have botanical ingredients such as juniper roots and bark to go with their theme. So there's also going to be beer and wine, but Scientists from the museum will be there to chat, answer questions in an informal setting, and there's going to be visiting DJs, karaoke, and trivia. This pop-up bar exhibit goes along with an exhibit at the museum called Specimens Unlocking the Secrets of Life, which is why they have that botanical theme. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Both of the drinks that you mentioned sound like very, you know, herbivorous things. It'd be funny if they had one that was like a beating heart in like, you know, snake blood or something. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. But that would be like, you know, if you want to have like a carnivorous kind of diet. Maybe they chose not to do that because it didn't sound good. <laughs> I guess that's a good reason. <laughs> they could also have sushi. You could be like a spinosaurus, have some raw fish. I guess. Um, <laughs> I don't know if they have food. It might just be drinks. I suppose. I don't really like the sound of drinking a beating heart. Oh, that's, yeah. you're probably right. <laughs> This is why I'm not a marketer. <laughs> or a mixologist. Yeah. Next up, there's an article about sauropod vertebrae, and it kind of goes into the question of how did sauropods grow so large without causing problems for their back or neck or tail? Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of pieces to that puzzle, I think. But here's another one. Yes. Specifically on the formation of the vertebrae. So in vertebrates, we have two pieces that form separately in a vertebra, and it's the body and the neural arch. And I saw it described as like a padlock where the body of the vertebra is like the big piece that's kind of round. And that's where like the disc is when people have issues with their discs in their back. That's in between the bodies of vertebrae. And then the neural arch is kind of the top of the padlock that if it was a padlock would open up but it doesn't when it's in your vertebrae <laughs> and, that's good yeah and the spinal cord runs through that basically when you're young the two pieces are actually not yet connected and there's just some cartilage in between the neural arch and the body of the vertebra but as you grow up eventually they fuse and in humans it's at about six to seven years old your vertebrae fuse together and now you have a nice solid backbone, I guess. <laughs> so that's not solid before then? Yeah. I was thinking about that and thinking about my nephews. And niece. Yeah. Who just like beat the crap out of each other. And like I'm imagining their poor little vertebrae that are like jiggling around because <laughs> <laughs> they're not fused together. So yeah, that's pretty intense. And I should mention, too, that doesn't mean that all the vertebrae are connected. They're not. I mean, they're connected by ligaments and things like that, but they're not fused together. It's just fusing within a single vertebra. That's all well and good for humans because we're pretty lightweight and I guess, you know, we, we manage. But with sauropods, they don't fuse until they're about 20 years old. 
And remember, dinosaurs grow a lot more quickly than us. So a 20-year-old sauropod has been full grown effectively for a little while. <laughs> yeah, had to to survive to age 20. Yeah. And you're talking about tons and tons of weight being supported and manipulated when it's walking. So how exactly did they deal with all this weight when their vertebrae were not fully fused and you just had this kind of cartilage in between them? So what they discovered is that in humans, we have smooth interfaces between the halves in between the body and the neural arch. But on sauropods, they actually have a zigzag in between the two halves. And it's kind of like puzzle pieces that holds it together and resists the friction and sliding forces. And it adds a lot of extra strength to the joint. So literally a puzzle piece to the puzzle of how sauropods got <laughs> Yep, exactly. I do love a good sauropod article. Not related to sauropods, but still cool though. Uh, Auburn University in Alabama raised over $10,000 on Rise. I'd never heard of that website before. I heard of like GoFundMe or something. It's like but... a crowdfunding site? Mm-hmm. Huh. And this was so they could properly house its only dinosaur egg. It's a hadrosaur egg. A group of teenagers found when walking near a stream, and it's the only dinosaur egg found east of the Mississippi River. Now, right now, it lives in a styrofoam box marked Dino Egg, and it needs a proper display with security. The school also wants the display to show CT scans and 3D images of the egg, and their goal was to raise $15,000 by February 21st. It looks like they only reached 70%, $10,602, with 195 donors, but that's still a really good start. Yeah. Next, Garrett, you'll like this one. The Super Tree Grove at the Gardens by the Bay in Singapore, and we visited those super trees, what, four or five years ago now? Yeah, it was a little while ago. I really like trees in general, but these trees were cool because they have like evaporation characteristics to help cool down the museum and stuff. And they're large. Yeah. And you can walk on like a catwalk between them. That's really fun. Yeah. So... This area, they had some life-size dinosaurs pop up for the Children's Festival, which began on March 2nd, according to today. The dinosaurs are brightly colored. There's bright blue, red, yellow, and they're made of foam and silicone with metal skeletons. So they include a 52-foot or 16-meter-tall Brachiosaurus, a 30-foot or 9-meter-tall T-Rex, and a 23-foot or 7-meter-long Triceratops. Those are pretty much full scale then. Mm-hmm full scale and just brightly colored, <laughs> <laughs> which I saw the pictures. It just looks like really big toys. That's cool. So there's 11 sculptures and they can blink and move their hands and jaws. Gardens by the Bay designed these dinosaurs and they wanted to let kids know how it would feel to walk among dinosaurs, which is pretty cool. Yeah. The sculptures also light up at night with LED lights and the children's festival runs until April 2nd. So if you're in Singapore... That's in kind of a main part of Singapore, right? Yeah, it's kind of the most touristy spot. Yeah. <laughs> but Singapore is a pretty small country, so it's easy to get around. And it's got its own subway stop, I think. Yeah. I remember that area being really neat at, at night because they have lights everywhere. And I think they did a laser show or something, too. Yeah, some kind of light show. Yeah. And I think it was about a year ago, too, that in Singapore, nearby in that mall there... They the did balloons. It. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're all the balloons. Yeah, they do cool dinosaur stuff. I guess it's the dinosaur time of year in Singapore. Every spring they do something. For the children's festival, I think that was yeah. the other reason. Yeah, that's cool. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. 
Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And thanks to our listener, Vince, we now know a lot more about Jurassic Quest which is a traveling exhibit. And I think there might even be two of them because I was looking at their site and there were dates that overlapped in cities. So it seems like they must have at least two sets of all these dinosaurs. That'd be smart. It's really popular. Yeah. Every week I see news articles about different (laughs) cities that have Jurassic Quest. I think we've mentioned it on and off for the last year or two. (laughs) Like, oh, Jurassic Quest just got to whatever city whenever it makes the news. Yeah. So it's a traveling show, like I mentioned, and it was in Vince's town from a Friday through a Sunday. And he said, if you're going to go, you need to go early because he tried going on 1 p.m. on a Saturday and it was way too busy. He said it was going to be like a two hour wait. So they just left and came back (laughs) the next morning and it was a little more bearable. Um, I also saw that they were recommending if it is a Friday through a Sunday that if you go on Friday, it's not as bad. Because the kids are in school. Yeah, I think that's the real reason because it's completely impractical. And then they also said if you go in the last four hours, it can be a little bit easier. And it's a little bit expensive. It's about 20 to $30 per adult. And then kids are about $5 cheaper. So still pretty expensive for kids. Vince says the dinosaurs were actually pretty good. They recreated the fighting dinosaurs that we like so much, the raptor and the protoceratops, and that the raptors have feathers, which is cool. Yeah, we saw pictures that Vince sent. Yeah, he sent us a lot of really great pictures. And they also made lots of other full-scale dinosaur recreations. The website claims they have the largest dinosaurs in North America, and I don't really know where they're getting that from. Maybe they mean like... The large, I, Maybe I it's the know. largest traveling dinosaurs. It could be because the largest dinosaur recreation is in Two Medicine Dinosaur Center. But that's not animatronic. It's not. That's true. But then there are animatronic dinosaurs at that New Jersey, what's that thing called? Field Station. Yeah, Field Station dinosaurs. And they had some huge Which sauropods. Which there anymore. It's not, but I think they still exist. They're still in North America somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway... They do have Sue, the super huge T-Rex, or a recreation of her, I should say, as well as a 40-foot Apatosaurus recreation, which is big, but, you know, not particularly big for a sauropod. And Vince says that they have very simple and jerky movements, which, again, reminded me a lot of that field station dinosaurs. And much like that, at the time we said that Field Station Dinosaurs is really best for kids because there's a lot of activities and stuff to do. But for adults, it gets a little boring pretty quickly. And that's what he said, too. He said 14 and under is really the target age. But they do have at least a few fossil casts. And it sounds like they have a few more interesting activities than Field Station Dinosaur had. So you can ride in air quotes, <laughs> a dinosaur, which really just means sit on the back of a dinosaur. Good photo op. Yeah. And they call it a moving dinosaur, like ride a moving dinosaur on the website. But I think like its head moves back and forth while you sit on it. Oh, it's the not body like, doesn't move. Yeah. It's not like you're riding it in a circle. They also have dinosaur face painting. You can expose fossils, which is that cheesy thing I always think of where you brush the sand off a fossil and then somebody comes over and dumps more sand on it so someone else can brush it off. 
and <laughs> you can break up sandstone and then plaster cast a fossil which actually does sound really cool i've never seen that before so pretty good interactive activities there's also a petting zoo with baby dinos oh yeah yeah that seems pretty cool uh vince didn't get a chance to see that apparently it was a little too popular and you couldn't really get close to them <laughs> maybe unless you want to elbow people out of the way we've seen things like that before there it looks like they're basically a puppet so the handler has one arm in the dinosaur puppet and then the other arm you know feeding it or whatever that could be a good show yeah it seems pretty cool so if you're interested in seeing what jurassic quest is like check out the pictures posted on our site there's a good chance it'll come near your city anyway also <laughs> they're constantly moving around and there are a few other ones that look pretty similar although this looks like probably one of the better ones so thanks again, Vince, for all the information. Yeah, and for the pictures in the video. Next, the Witt Museum in San Antonio, Texas, has been renovated and reopened on March 4th, according to San Antonio Magazine. It took two years and $100 million, and it's based on what the community wanted to see, which is pretty cool. So the museum's president and CEO... Maurice McDermott and her team interviewed hundreds of people from the community, and they found that people wanted to know more about Texas history and explore San Antonio's river routes and know more about the larger world. So they came up with a concept called Texas Deep Time, which is immersive and tech-heavy, and it includes casts of dinosaur footprints, and visitors can also excavate bones at the Dinosaur Lab, which is one of five working labs in the museum. Cool. That's a lot of labs. <laughs> yeah. Next, the Albuquerque Journal reported on a new dinosaur discovered by Sebastian Dahlman, a paleontologist and research associate at the New Mexico Museum of Natural History and Science. The dinosaur won't be announced formally until April, so we'll get more into it then. But Dahlman said he discovered the dinosaur by analyzing fossilized fragments the museum had had in 1997 and were thought to be Taurosaurus. Dahlman went on a dig at the site where the fragments were found in the McRae Formation, and then he and his team found more pieces, including more of the cranium. So put together, the fossils seemed to show a new species. All we know so far is that it's a relative of Triceratops that lived at the end of the Cretaceous. How cool would it be if it was like the transition fossil from Triceratops to Oh, that would be. <laughs> Fuel that debate a little more. Yeah. Or settle the debate, depending on what it looks like. Yeah. That would be cool. We'll have to wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> Won't have to wait too long. That's true. And speaking of paleontology finds, there's a new interactive map that aggregates just a huge number of paleontology finds all over the world. And they even claim that it's, you know, most of the paleontology finds. And after looking at it, every paleontology find that I know of specifically, I could find on the map. So you can filter it by any time range. For instance, you could do the Mesozoic, you could do just the Cretaceous, or you could even go all the way down to the Maastrichtian, which is the very end of the Cretaceous, and when a lot of people's favorite dinosaurs like Triceratops and T-Rex were around. Or you can do it by any taxa. You can do Dinosauria, you could do Theropoda, or you could do Tyrannosaurids or Tyrannosaurus specifically. And you can even do a specific strata, like you could just look at all the dinosaurs in the Hell Creek or just everything that's in the Hell Creek formation, marine fossils included. Oh, that would have helped the Saurian team. Yeah, it's a super helpful tool. And you can combine all of those too. So I was looking at dinosaurs from the Maastrichtian in the Hell Creek. There's a lot of overlap there, but... <laughs> It's really fun and powerful to go through this. And like I said, it's all over the world. So you can go anywhere, Africa, Europe, Asia, North America, South America, Antarctica, Australia. I think that's all of them. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds a lot like what the Phil J. Curry Museum yeah. in Alberta were building. Like they yeah. hadn't quite finished their map, but they were doing something similar. Yeah, we were playing with that there. They had a fun version that was a lot like this. Although I think theirs was pretty much just dinosaurs. I'm not positive about that. Oh, yeah, I think you're right. But you might have been able to filter and add other things too. It was a really similar map though and really cool. Theirs also was a little bit more user-friendly because they have pictures on theirs. This one usually just links you to an article or tells you the source that it's in. And sometimes it doesn't even have the name of the dinosaur. So you have to kind of know what you're looking for to get the best use out of it. But 
it's still super useful because it, it links to what author discovered it and what year and all that kind of stuff. So you can always trace back if you need to. I was playing with it for maybe 10, 15 minutes and I finally found That's it. it. Yeah. It, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't take long to find everything that you can think of. It's such an easy thing to use. And I finally found exactly where in California the dinosaurs were found because I'd been wondering, but it's kind of difficult to narrow that down. It's hard to search through literature for things like that. But when you have a map and you're just interested in one state, you just zoom in on that state, you pick your dinosaurs, and then there you go. They're right there. If you're interested in seeing what kind of dinosaurs are near you or what kind of fossils are near you, it's really fun to go in there and zoom in by your house. I did that too. Unfortunately, <laughs> by our house, there's no good dinosaurs, but there are a lot of marine fossils because we're on the coast in California. So we were just, you know, in the ocean <laughs> back in the Mesozoic. So yeah, a lot of fun though. It's really cool to look around at all the different sites. And it also really shows why... The place to be if you're interested in dinosaur fossils in North America is that Montana, Colorado, Alberta kind of region because they give those dots that grow in size depending on the number of finds. Mm -hmm. And that area is just solid, you know, peppered with them. <laughs> and most of the rest of the U.S. is pretty empty. Next, according to the OC Register, a 12-year-old girl discovered a dinosaur and then scientists nicknamed the dinosaur after her. So the girl's name is Clarissa Coos. She's now 16, and she often goes camping with her parents in Hell Creek in Montana. Clarissa, the girl, is known as Dino Girl and was featured in Dennis Porcello's children's book called Dino Girl. Hmm. And the dinosaur, Clarissa, the nicknamed <laughs> dinosaur, that, that was discovered, will go on display at the Burke Museum in Seattle in 2019. It's a two-ton Edmontosaurus, about 40 feet or 12 meters long. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like she might become a paleontologist. Yeah, that seems likely if she's already nicknamed Dino Girl at such a young age. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In Atlanta, Georgia, Stone Mountain Park is opening up a new attraction called Dinosaur Explore, according to Access Atlanta. It opens March 30th, and they're going to have 20 animatronic dinosaurs made of a rubber-like compound. Apparently they won't be as big as the Jurassic Quest ones, though, but... There will also be a Dinotorium, which will be an indoor area where people can learn about dinosaur habitats and feed baby dinosaurs <laughs> and talk with dino rangers. That reminds me of that little doll. I don't know if you ever saw that one. It was like popular in the 90s or something that you could feed and then it would like pee too and you had to change its diaper. Was it a dinosaur doll? No, it was, a, it was like a human doll. Oh. I wasn't really into dolls. So. Oh, okay. I was just imagining like feeding an inanimate object because <laughs> you're going to have to like empty it <laughs> periodically as the kids feed it. I guess. Whether it's a liquid or a solid. Unless you just feed it like Cookie Monster where yeah. it just crumbles all over the floor. <laughs> I don't know exactly what the plan is. Yeah. But anyway, dinosaurs in the attraction are going to include T-Rex, Brachiosaurus, Triceratops, and Allosaurus. Tickets cost $31.95 for adults and $26.95 for kids, which is an interesting amount, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, very specific. Pretty similar to Jurassic Quest, too. Yeah. In Kent, in the UK, the Port Limpney, and I may be totally mispronouncing that, the animal reserve, they've added a Spinosaurus to their dinosaur forest, according to Kent Live. And the Spinosaurus is 59 feet or 18 meters long Oof. and weighs 20 tons. The, the actual thing weighs 20 tons? Yes. Holy cow. They wanted to make it realistic, I guess. Yeah. So the animal reserve is open from 9.30 a.m. to 6 p.m. And tickets cost 25 pounds for adults and 21 pounds for kids. Also pretty similar to Jurassic Quest. I like the idea of this dinosaur forest that we've talked about before. Yeah, that was kind of the style of field station dinosaurs where you kind of walked around and then you're like, oh, look, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't see that coming. Whereas the Jurassic Quest is more like you go to a giant tent or like, a, you know, convention hall kind of thing. And it's just jam full of people and dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> Next, thanks to Brett, who shared this one with us via Facebook. Sideshow Collectibles has added a new Gastonia, which is an ankylosaur statue to the shop. 
It's a limited edition. There's only 200 available, and it costs $349, which is a bit steep. But it's very realistic looking with some impressive like armor plates on its back. And there's also an optional removable pterosaur that you can have on its back. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. Next up, we have some questions from Dee and Sean Tanagaki. So I'm just going to quickly play Sean's question. So to answer Sean's question of how did pteranodons turn into birds, first of all, pterosaurs in general evolved from a shared ancestor with dinosaurs. And as far as we know, they never evolved bird-like feathers, so they always looked more like a bat, I guess, than like a bird. But with beaks, right? Yeah, with beaks and teeth sometimes, depends. And dinosaurs actually evolved feathers before they could fly, like we mentioned earlier, and then later on evolved into birds. So modern birds are actually the only dinosaur descendants that are still around. And unfortunately, there aren't any modern pterosaurs. So dinosaurs turned into birds and the birds are still around, but small land living reptiles evolved into pterosaurs and then they just died out at the end of the Cretaceous with some of the bigger dinosaurs that couldn't fly. Thanks, Sean, for the question. Yeah, great questions. And then Sean's dad, D asked us, how do we know the actual age of fossils? Do we use strata, preserve details of the atmosphere, or something else? And basically, we use all of the above. So there are entire fields dedicated to the different techniques of dating ancient things, whether it's in archaeology or paleontology. And I'm by no means an expert, but I'm going to give my best shot at answering it. So in my wheelhouse is the radiometric dating because I'm all about that chemistry. And the one everybody's heard of is carbon dating. So in that process, there's carbon-14 and carbon-12 that's naturally occurring in the atmosphere. And as plants breathe in carbon dioxide, they incorporate that carbon-14 and carbon-12 into their bodies, for lack of a better word. And then when they're eaten by herbivores, they ingest that carbon-14 and car carbon-12 and it stays intact and gets incorporated into their bodies. And if herbivores are eaten by carnivores, that carbon-14 and carbon-12 gets into them. So basically every living animal has this ratio of carbon-14 and carbon-12 that's in the atmosphere at the time that they're alive. And carbon-14 is an unstable isotope of carbon, and it breaks down slowly over time. So after 6,000 years, there's half of the carbon-14 in an organism that was originally there. And 6,000 years later, there'll be a, a quarter of what was originally there. And, you know, 18,000 years total, we're at an eighth and so on. And that's a pretty useful way to date things, especially in a short term. Unfortunately, carbon dating only gets us back about 60,000 years. And that's not even remotely close enough to get to the 60 plus million year mark when dinosaurs were around. In order to do that, we use something called potassium argon dating. And that is incredibly useful in paleontology. So the basic process there is actually pretty different. What happens is there are different isotopes of potassium and potassium 40 is an un unstable isotope and it gets trapped into crystallized lava when lava is formed and it slowly decays into calcium and argon. Now, calcium is already in lava, so that's not particularly useful, but argon isn't because argon's a gas normally. So what you end up with is you have this gas that's trapped in the lava that's been crystallized into rock, and you can measure the amount of argon that's trapped in the rock and its ratio to the potassium-40, and then you can calculate how long it's been since that rock crystallized. So if you imagine you've got that layer cake kind of strata of all the different eras of earth you know piled up you've got the old stuff at the bottom and the newest stuff on top and you've got lava in these different layers you can look at the lava and you can see how long ago it formed and since 
the lava didn't get formed at a later date and then pushed down into some other strata, you can tell when it's been relatively undisturbed, then you can use that to date that strata. And what you do then is you say, okay, well, we can date this lava. It's right next to this fossil. So we know how old the fossil is. And the really great thing about potassium argon dating is it has a half-life of 1.25 billion years <laughs> compared with 6,000 years. So you can date anything back to the formation of the earth using potassium argon dating. So there's no limitations. It works for any paleontology you can come up with, especially considering vertebrates only go back 500 million years. There are also other types of radiometric dating that can be used, but I'm not an expert in any of those. Not that I'm an expert in carbon or argon dating either. But the main way that paleontologists ultimately date things is by kind of combining these absolute age radiometric dating with the strata. So you kind of play a game with rare or very fast evolving fossils. We've talked about before mollusks evolve pretty quickly sometimes. And so if you find a very specific species of mollusk and you know it only existed for a short period of time, and then you find that near your dinosaur fossil, you know just exactly when that dinosaur was around because it coexisted with the mollusk and you know you can figure out when the mollusk existed. And you basically just play this game over and over again all over the world and you develop the whole scientific literature on when things were around and eventually you get a good picture. It doesn't always work. Sometimes there's only rough estimates because you don't have good marine sediments and you don't have lava around. And then you just hope that eventually you find something that correlates between the things you found and the things that are found somewhere else that are more specifically dated. Wasn't it most of the time it's like a ballpark within a couple million years, yeah. give or take? I think some of that might have to do with this potassium argon dating because it's roughly accurate to a million year. Mm. And species tend to evolve every two million-ish years. So even if you have an overlap of species and you know when that one was around, it doesn't specifically give you the exact date because species don't go extinct overnight. So that's how we do it, as best I know, <laughs> unless I get a correction. <laughs> he also asked another question, and I'm going to quote him on this one. I have learned that our Earth used to turn or rotate much, much faster than what it is today. If that is so, our definition of a year is different than what it was many years ago. My question is that, is it really the same years that it took for them to evolve? Or their 100 million years, for example, is our 50 million years in scale? And that's a very interesting question. It's even more out of my wheelhouse <laughs> because I don't know that much about astronomy. But luckily, NASA has a lot to say about this. <laughs> And the first thing is the difference between the Earth's rotation versus revolution. So basically, our day is a lot longer than it was in Earth's history, but our year is effectively the same. That's weird. Yeah, because we're no longer spinning as fast as we used to, which is what we'd usually call rotation, but we are moving around the sun in the same period as we used to, which is what we usually call revolving. So in the very early years of the solar system's history, there were a lot of interactions between planets and the sun, and Earth was getting bombarded constantly by meteors and things like that, and Earth's year probably did change pretty significantly over the first couple million to maybe a billion years. But according to NASA's models and their understanding of how our solar system formed, they think that the planet's orbit pretty well stabilized well over a billion years ago. And again, that's way before any vertebrates and most things were fossilizing. So it didn't really affect any paleontology in a major way. Now, the question of how do we know that we've been slowing down and how does that affect our accounting for how long ago things were, we can use fossilized shells that basically grew on a daily cycle to tell that back in the very beginning of the Mesozoic, there were about 23 hours in a day rather than 24 hours. And the Earth year had about 380 days. But that's just because we were spinning faster. It's not because the year was actually longer. And then over the last, you know, hundreds of millions of years, 
tidal forces between the Earth and the Moon slowed down our spin and sped up the Moon's spin, it turns out that depending on how much ice is in the ice caps versus water in the oceans, it changes the angular momentum of Earth a little bit, and that will speed up or slow down the year ever so slightly, along with the amount of mass that's in the sun. So... (laughs) (laughs) So many things. Yeah. So part of the reason that the year might have changed early on in the solar system is the sun likely lost a lot of mass in early years. Not a ton, but, you know, several percent of mass. And that might be enough to change the effect of gravity on Earth and therefore the length of the year. But long story short, (laughs) we use the radiometric dating and similar techniques to get the age of fossils. And the year hasn't really changed much. It's basically days. If we, instead of saying how many years ago something happened, we said how many days ago, then it would screw stuff up. But luckily the years haven't changed. That's good. It'd be a lot harder to date days from millions of years ago. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It would be like when you talk about money, like this used to cost this much money, but in today's money, you'd have to like always say that in today's days. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thanks a lot for the questions. They were a lot of fun digging into. Yeah, and we enjoy the YouTube videos as well. Next in New Orleans, Louisiana, Lightwire Theater had a special program called Dino Light on February 26th at the Mondavi Center. According to the Davis Enterprise, the show mixed puppets with lights and dancing, so that made some glow-in-the-dark dinosaurs. From the picture, it looks a lot like light paintings. And the story was about a magical scientist who comes across a curious dinosaur, and then they journey into this world of glowing animals. So it sounded pretty awesome. It's too bad they were just there for the one day. And last in the news, Island 359, the dinosaur survival VR game that we mentioned a few months ago, was demoed at GDC with full body tracking on the HTC Vive. And basically, they added sensors to the feet, and it looked like they might have been using some extra camera or something to track the rest of the limbs because he was doing like a chicken dance kind of thing, (laughs) and the elbows were moving. (laughs) But in the video showing it in action, the guy playing the video actually kicked one of the little dinosaurs running at him. And... He, I think, also kicked like a velociraptor, which was, you know, like Deinonychus sized. Uh oh. It's no good. <laughs> it seemed to actually be kind of effective against them, but it Not really. In real life, I bet. Yeah, well, maybe. For the little guys, oh. we could. But a Deinonychus? I don't know. That, that might be a little more risky. But the kicking didn't help at all against the T Rex and the Triceratops. Oh, uh, yeah. And yeah, he he got killed as soon as he encountered them. They're just anger them. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think he he started by shooting the T-Rex and it still didn't really phase it. Oh, or was it one of those bulletproof T-Rexes? It might be. Yeah. They're pretty Jurassic Parky in that game. The game still, unfortunately, even with the full body tracking, relies pretty heavily on teleporting. So it looks like it would take you out of it a little bit because... You can kick at stuff that's nearby, but then you still have to warp all over the place. You can't just walk more naturally. That's the biggest thing in VR that they really need to handle is how you move around naturally in the environment. We're still in early days. We are. It's rapidly developing. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot of interest in it. Yeah. Because it's so fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've made it through the news. Thanks for sticking with us. (laughs) Yeah. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. And now on to the dinosaur of the day, Chasmosaurus, which was a request from Cole via Patreon. So thanks, Cole. 
Chasmosaurus was a ceratopsid that lived in the Cretaceous in North America. The name means opening lizard, and it's named that because of the large openings in its frill. It was found in the Dinosaur Park formation of the Dinosaur Provincial Park of Alberta, Canada. There's two species of Chasmosaurus, Chasmosaurus russelli and Chasmosaurus belli, and Chasmosaurus belli is the type species. Chasmosaurus russelli is in the older lower dinosaur park formation, and Chasmosaurus belli is in the middle dinosaur park formation. Lawrence Morris Lamb found the first Chasmosaurus bones in 1897. He found the holotype, which was part of a neck frill. He thought it could be a new species, but categorized it as an already known genus, Monoclonius, and he called it Monoclonius belli. The species name belli is in honor of collector Walter Bell. Then in 1913, Charles Sternberg and his sons found a few complete Monoclonius belli skulls in Alberta, plus a largely complete skeleton with skin impressions. Ooh. And in 1914, Lamb named them Protorosaurus as an ancestor to Torosaurus. But that name was already being used for a Permian reptile found in Germany that was described in 1836 by Meyer. So Lamb renamed that Chasmosaurus in February of 1914. Man, it must have been hard before the internet where... <laughs> Well, there's a lot of these stories of... The, yeah, because you couldn't just go to a magical box and type in the word you were thinking of using and see if anybody else has used it yet. Dig through a hundred books and hope to find it if it exists. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of skulls and fossils that have been referred to Chasmosaurus and many species named, though there's only two that are still considered valid. Barnum Brown named Chasmosaurus... Kaisenai in 1933 based on a skull that had long brow horns, which actually may just be related to Chasmosaurus canadensis, which was named in 1990 by Thomas Lemon. Chasmosaurus canadensis was originally Monoclonius canadensis. Lamb had found it in 1902 and described it as Eoceratops canadensis in 1915. And this Eoceratops and Chasmosaurus kaisenai were thought to be Mojoceratops, named by Nicholas Longridge, but some scientists think that Mojoceratops is a synonym of Chasmosaurus russeli. And in 2016, Campbell and others found that Eoceratops and Chasmosaurus kaisenai were both just Chasmosaurus. In 1933, Richard Swan Lull named a specimen Chasmosaurus breviostris. It had a short snout, but it's now seen to be a junior synonym of Chasmosaurus belli. And then Charles Sternberg named Chasmosaurus russeli in 1940. That's the second valid species. And that species name is in honor of Loris Shannon Russell. In 1987, Gregory Paul renamed Pentaceratops sternbergii into Chasmosaurus, but no one's really accepted that. In 1989, Thomas Lemon described Chasmosaurus mariscalensis, which was found in Texas, but that has since been renamed to Aguhaceratops. In 2000, George Olszewski renamed Monoclonius recurvicornis, it was originally named in 1889, to Chasmosaurus recurvicornis, but now that's a nomum duium. In 2001, Chasmosaurus ervinensis was named, but that's since been renamed to Vagaceratops, that was renamed in 2010. That's so many namings. Yes. You lost me after like the third one. <laughs> well, that's just a history of how many species there were, but all you need to know is that there are two valid ones. Chasmosaurus belli, which is the type species, and Chasmosaurus russeli. Thank you. So Chasmosaurus was about 14 to 16 feet, or 4.3 to 4.8 meters long, and weighed 1.5 to 2 tons. The skin impressions that Charles Sternberg had found had large scales in horizontal rows that were among smaller scales that were hexagonal or pentagonal. It was unclear what color they were. Chasmosaurus had three horns, one on the nose and two on the brow. The horns were short, though Chasmosaurus russeli had longer horns that were more curved backwards than Chasmosaurus belli. But Chasmosaurus belli had a V-shaped frill at the back. Chasmosaurus russeli is more of a shallow U-shape. The sides of the frill had osteoderms. It's not clear what Chasmosaurus used its horns and frill for, since the horns were short and the frill had such large openings, so that wouldn't have been great for defense. And maybe they used their beaks for defense instead. The frill may have been meant to look more vicious or used for thermal regulation or to attract mates. They may have been brightly colored. There was skin that covered the large openings, so it would have looked like a solid frill. And because there's soft tissue in the frill, it's possible Chasmosaurus could have flushed and made its frill look more vivid. It had a longer snout and jaws than other ceratopsians that lived around, so it may have been a pickier eater. 
and it may have taken care of its young. Phil Curry and a team found a juvenile Chasmosaurus belli in Alberta. They thought it to be three years old, and it had similar limb and frill proportions to an adult, so it probably wasn't that fast and didn't need to keep up with adults, which is why it's possible they, they took care of their young. Interesting. And I'm pretty sure, if I'm not mistaken, that the SVP 2017 logo is based on that specific juvenile Chasmosaurus. Because it was cool. discovered in Alberta <laughs> near where the convention's going to be. There's a lot of dinosaurs discovered in Alberta. There are. But that one's pretty cute because it's a little baby ceratopsian. Yeah. Maybe they'll make it look really colorful. Yeah. I've only seen it in black and white so far. Oh, okay. <laughs> That'd be cool though. And then of course, chasmosaurines are one of the two main groups of ceratopsians. And our fun fact of the day is that the first dinosaurs were carnivorous then later dinosaurs were omnivorous, and eventually quadrupedal dinosaurs were herbivorous, and they got massively successful by the mid-Jurassic. Weren't there bipedal herbivorous dinosaurs that were successful? Yes, but I don't think there were any quadrupedal dinosaurs that were carnivorous. Uh, I see. <laughs> I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure. <laughs> And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.